3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and we recognise their unceded sovereignty. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis Clap and current hands. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to yeah. late 30am. Clap Good morning everyone. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio and this is Wednesday Breakfast. Uh, I am Will. I'm Edwin. Good morning. And uh, thanks for tuning in. I hope you have mm. uh, a wonderful time listening to us as you crawl to work or <laughs> crawl out of bed. as you crawl home from work <laughs> oh, or as you are currently at work. I, d- I didn't have a good one. I, d- I can't figure out crawl whilst you're at work. I crawl at work. <laughs> Crawl into work, whatever. Yeah, the point anyway. is, good morning uh, for your morning routine. Yeah. And, and thanks for letting us be a part of it. And thanks to Earth Matters mm. um, for a fantastic half hour of programming. Um, great show. You can tune into them every morning, every every Wednesday morning at 6.30. And, um, yeah, that's, that's a repeat. They do have another show during the week, and I'll have to get that time. Now, talking about follow-ups, I yes. will. I found out the show I said last week, and I forgot to give an actual name for. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Swedish so Sherlock Holmes. Swedish Sherlock Holmes. Uh, it? So it's called Anno 1790. Oh. So Anno, A-N-N-O. 1790, it literally has its time stamped on the name. Right. So you can't go really wrong so with it. So it takes place in takes 1790. It does yeah, take okay, place sure. in 1790, uh, parallel to the French Revolution. So, you oh, know, there okay. you go. Right. Um, oh, yeah, sorry, we forgot to mention that today's date is the 16th of January. So mm. that's um, if you're setting up your diary for the day, you've got one of those diaries where you have to write in the date. I just realised <laughs> what I was saying. Yeah, um, how's your week been? My know. week's been amazing. Um, my partner and I are embarking on three weeks of pa- parties on Saturdays. Wow. So we came up to our second week, this one, and it's, it's quite funny because the first week we've had of January, we went to a very laid-back pool party, you know, like oh, 10 people. That's, that's nice. This next one we went to was a Docklands, 100 people, <laughs> fancy stuff, you know, cocktail oh, dress. So nice. it was like, whoa. Okay. And then we've got another party coming up on Saturday. So I'm a little bit like... I don't really know what time or day it is. No, <laughs> because radio is an oral medium, you can't actually see that I've been right. back in a chair. She's got her hand <laughs> pressed to her forehead. Like, I do. Oh, what was me? These parties. <laughs> so yeah, that's so that's fun. that's okay. been my life at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. How um, about you, Will? For me, um, I've been reading books. Hey. <laughs> in contrast to all your fun, you know, I've 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 you know, been out not to not to brag, but I've been out with friends. <laughs> I've been out doing things. Yeah. No, but I've been reading a book. Um, called uh, The President's Garden mm-hmm. by, oh. Uh, oh dear, I've forgotten his name. I'll, I'll bring it up again, but it's a really fantasy book by a, um Iraqi Spanish writer, and it's set in Iraq, um, and in the years before the invasion um, uh, in 2004, and uh, just really fantastic. Oh, sorry, his name is um, uh, Muhsin al-Ramli. Um, and uh, if you're able to get your hands on on this book, he's coming out with his um, uh, coming out with a follow-up book called Daughter of the Tigers, and it's the story of three friends oh. as they grow up in um, in Iraq under Saddam Hussein, 
under the present um, and the the wars that they are forced into as just regular people and Gosh. the trauma that they experience as a result of that and the way that their relationships change through time. And it's a fantastic book. It really is beautifully yeah. written. Um, it's it's a work of translation as well. So if you're interested in translation, ah. it's a fantastic book to read. Um, it's called The President's Garden. I recommend it. I'm Ooh. not a bookstore, so I don't think I've got a vested interest. It's a really great book. It's a good yeah. book. Um, I've started reading, I've meant to read it for ages, mm-hmm. but I've started reading The Handmaid's Tale Ooh, yeah, by um, Margaret Atwood. Atwood. Yeah. yeah, so I've been enjoying that. And someone said to me, oh, it's not really a f- book full of very nice moments. And I think actually the point is it's a book full of extraordinarily mm-hmm. nice moments here and there, but they're just right. pulled down by the fact that they're so... Um, oh, you're, when you say nice moments, nice it's not moments. very uplifting. No, it's not oh, uplifting. Yeah, no, yeah. no. But there's like these, these these memories throughout the book, which mm-hmm. just humanizes it. So I'm I'm getting hit hard yes. by that yes. book, yeah. which is quite powerful. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, can we make this the summer of books? Can yeah. we read more books? I need to read. More I think books. so. That's definitely yeah. one of my resolutions. Yeah. Okay. Throughout the year, constantly a resolution. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Books. Definitely. <laughs> Next up, I'm reading The Angel of History oh. by Rabih Alamedin. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a, basically, I'm, I, I'm exclusively reading readers, uh, reading writers from the Middle East. But, um, nice. Yeah, I, uh, that's not a conscious thing. It just seems to be happening at the moment. Um, <laughs> shall we go through what the show is about today? Yeah, let's what get about? on with it. We've got a busy show today, actually. We do, actually. Yeah, at um, 7.15, we're going to be speaking to Joshua Badge from No Pride in Invasion, Mm-hmm. Which is a sister, uh, a brand new sister. Um, I wouldn't call it an organisation. It's a sort of alliance of people mm-hmm. um, related to No Pride and Detention. They'll be No Pride and Invasion will be marching as the queer contingent in the upcoming Invasion Day rally. Yep. Um, on the twenty sixth of January. So um, be fantastic to hear from from him. Uh, and then we're going to be hearing a uh, an interview by Indigenous Rights Radio. Um, Talking to Mara Mamullen, who's a um, executive director of the INA, which is a Maori, Indigenous, and South Pacific HIV/AIDS foundation, talking about the intersection of um, First Nations peoples' um, relationship with the medical industry and HIV/AIDS. Oh, wow. And so that'll be really interesting to hear. Yeah. Um, what's coming up at seven thirty? Yeah, seven thirty. We've got uh, the president of the ACTU, the Australian Council of Trade Unions, Michelle O'Neill, coming on to talk about a survey done by the ACTU about uh, sexual harassment. And then following that up after at 7.45, we'll be talking to Karen Adams from the Human Rights Law Centre, and she'll be talking to us about uh, the modern slavery bill that's passed through Parliament and the implications uh, for that for, like, work exploitation in Australia. Mm. Uh, 8 o'clock, Jan Bartlett interviews Debbie Brennan from PUSH. PUSH is an anti-fascist, a new anti-fascist organisation. We've had Debbie Brennan from PUSH on Wednesday breakfast before, Mm -hmm. and... Uh, Debbie is going to be talking about the past two weekends of protests against fascists. Yeah. Um, famously, uh, a weekend before last, uh, yep. there was the um, the neo-Nazi rally on mm. St Kilda Beach and the anti-fascist resistance to that. Mm. And there was a, a weekend after that. And so Debbie Brennan gives us a characterization of the two different weekends, what the difference was. Mm. Um, and then we're going to end the show speaking to Moreland Councillor Sue Bolton, who's going to be speaking about the immigration minister's plan to tie, um, in, in the rule book, um, citizenship ceremonies to so-called Australia Day and oh. that they have to be um, carried out on the 26th of January. Oh, that's gross. Um, and, and what the implications of this are. That's happening at 8.15. Oh. Uh, <laughs> folks, we'll be right back with alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn 
the time is 7.08 and you are listening to 3CR Community Radio. Uh, just get straight into it is what I should do? Yes. Okay, yes. cool. <laughs> um, so this is in The Guardian. Theresa May loses Brexit deal vote by majority of 230. 230 yep. votes more against the Brexit deal, which leaves Britain without a deal going into Brexit, which is just when's that? Uh, 29th of March. So I think someone said about 70 days. 70, yeah, just more days. than 70 days. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so this is the, the biggest defeat that a government has received in Britain mm. in the democratic era, so-called democratic era. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, this leaves leaves Britain with a whole lot of big questions. Yeah, facing a massive defeat. Mm. Um, and Jeremy, Labour leader Jeremy Corden tables a mo- has just tabled a motion of no confidence in the government. And... Uh, the BBC offers us a really lovely live update of the situation, obviously spiralling out of control there. Mm. But uh, if the government loses the no-confidence uh, bill, there'll be either either there is a clear alternative government, in which case the May resigns and um, the new PM is appointed, or there isn't a clear alternative government, and the current government has to try and win a confidence vote within 14 days. Mm. If it does that, government might continue. If it doesn't, it goes to general election. So really, um, England's facing a little bit of upheaval at the moment. Absolute chaos. Mm. Yeah, so um, we'll be watching that keenly as the days go by. Yes. Um, now, a bit of reading for you folks at home. Um, Anti-Zionism isn't the same as anti-Semitism. Is an article by Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times, and uh, this is probably something that you may have heard before. Um, the um, the article is very comprehensive, though, when it comes to talking about history of Jewish anti-Zionism or anti-Israelism, mm-hmm. um, and the um, the fact that you can be um, against Israel's um, occupation of Palestine and against Israel's building of illegal settlements, yeah. whilst not being anti-Semitic or anti-Jewish, um, and so it's a really it's a really interesting article. It's very long and very detailed. And I would recommend if you've got any free articles left with the New York Times, give it a read. <laughs> Do it. Um, yeah, and also um, another another article that I've been slowly making my way through because it's quite long. Who it's need? it's actually a. Ooh. Sorry about um, that. That was the BBC. <laughs> I see. Yeah, yeah. Theresa May giving some sort of. Speech on the on the bow of the Titanic. Um, Sorry about that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so this this article that I, I want to point you folks to again online. I'm afraid. So if you don't have the internet, I'm really sorry. But this is a fantastic article. If you have access to the internet, I would recommend it. It's it's titled "The Past Didn't Go Anywhere: Making Resistance to Anti-Semitism Part of All of Our Movements," and it's written by. April Rosenblum in 2007. You can read it on the website opensitter.org. So that's spelt. Open, the word open, Sidder, S-I-D-D-U-R dot org, which is a fantastic um, resource of um, Jewish texts and learning and reading. And it talks to us about the, and characterizes anti-Semitism as it exists today. Wow. Um, which I think is really helpful from a left perspective because mm. often, um, like, we're, we're very quick to self-criticize. Yeah, definitely. But, but our understanding of anti-Semitism is one that comes from um, an understanding of... Um, oh, I, I find it really hard hard to articulate. Um, well, that's just the thing, but, I think, but, yeah. But, a, um, but a, it's a type of racism which casts um, Jewish people as a secret hand behind society and as powerful yeah, people. Yeah, definitely. And this is something that we need to 
confront on the left. Um, confront in, and think about, opinion, definitely. And opinion, I think, but yeah. I think that ar- the article also definitely sounds like it's identifying what's going wrong mm. and why why we've got a little bit of those those hesitations. Yeah. Um, and kind of yeah. helping, kind of helping you calm mm. down and go right. Okay, I know where yeah. I stand with this issue, yeah. uh, especially because it's it, it's a big issue and it's one we all need to understand a bit more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. And so, so to say again, um, the past didn't go anywhere. Making resistance to anti-Semitism part of all of our movements is a long title. Mm-hmm. It was written by April Rosenblum in 2007. Uh, we will be right back. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yarrow country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you listen to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. for human rights, indigenous sovereignty and climate justice. Our destination is Manus Island. Join us for the Freedom Flotilla. Sailforjustice.org. Get on board. A 3CR supporter. We continue to honour Tana Minowait and Marboy Hina. And in doing so, we acknowledge all the achievements of our people against oppression. Join us to commemorate the two freedom fighters, Tana Minowait and Malboina, on Sunday, 20th of January, midday to 1pm. Come to the ceremony at the Tana Minowait and Malboina Monument, corner of Victoria and Franklin Streets, Melbourne. Bring flowers. After the ceremony, walk to Queen Victoria Markets to their final resting place. So many of my people have fought and died for our country, for our environment and for each other. Honour all the Aboriginal people who have been killed for protecting their lands, their families, culture and way of life. We're not going to stay silent and we need all you fellas to stand with us in this fight for justice. If you can't be there in person, tune into 3CR midday to 1pm Sunday, 20th of January for a live broadcast of the ceremony. Hey, how's it going? You're listening to 3CR Radical Radio. First Nations objections to the celebration of Australia Day have been around since 1938 when the Aborigines Progressive Association first led a day of mourning in Australia Hall, Sydney, Eora Country. This year, thousands are expected to march in cities and towns across Australia, and joining them in Narm, Melbourne, this year is No Pride in Invasion, marching as the queer contingent. Um, on the phone, we have Joshua Badge, who's an organiser with No Pride in Invasion, um, an LGBT activist and a lecturer in philosophy at Deakin. Uh, thanks for joining us on 3CR Breakfast, Joshua. No worries. How are you doing today? I'm so well. Thank you for joining us. Um, so let's get straight into it. First of all, who is No Pride in Invasion? Can you give us a bit of background? Yeah, sure. So No Pride in Invasion is kind of a small uh, sister group to the activist group No Pride in Detention. Um, so No Pride in Detention... Uh, organizes and participates in anti-detention rallies and demonstrations uh, throughout the year, um, protesting Australia's detention regime. 
relatively straightforward. Um, close to Invasion Day last year, they organised a queer contingent, um, to my knowledge, for the first time ever in the Invasion Day rally on January 26th. Um, and that experience was really good. It was really um, affirmative. Uh, people really enjoyed our presence there and re- really enjoyed being there, um, standing in solidarity with our First Nations peoples. Um, and so we just decided to do it again. So we're hoping to be um, back and bigger than ever this year. Um, and we've received a really good response so far. Wonderful. And what's the message that you hope to send by participating explicitly as queer people? Um, this is a pretty good question, and it kind of goes uh, a little bit of the way into what it means to be queer and the kind of uh, commitment that you have about that. So um, in a kind of shallow sense, there's some overlap and experience between uh, the LGBTI community as a whole and Indigenous communities. Um, you know, we can share um, a broad experience um, about, say, over-policing or um, persecution in the legal system, um, as well as just a general experience of not being treated very well by politicians. But in a kind of uh, more profound sense, it has more to do with, um, I guess, just caring about other people. You know, it can't just be about us all the time. It's very frustrating when uh, queer issues get sidelined and ignored. Uh, and I guess we can't be too upset about when that happens if we're not out there uh, standing up for other people and their struggles. Fantastic. And what has been the reception from the queer community, in particular First Nations queer people? Um, do, you, do you have them in your, um, as part of the grassroots organisation or are they um, reaching out to you? Um, a little bit. Uh, from column A, a little bit from column B. Um, I think that many uh, queer spaces have difficulty uh, connecting with First Nations people. There's a bit of a, uh, just a disconnect. Um, and so we're really hoping to have as many uh, queer Indigenous people and queer people of colour there as possible. Um, it's a very uh, low-key event, so there are just two organisers at the moment, me and Geraldine Taylor, um, who are both non-Indigenous, but hopefully we get to rectify that in the future. Mm. And so who, I, I imagine you're, you're open to, to growing and having more people come along and so show solidarity with First Nations people as they commemorate Invasion Day. Can, mm-hmm. can people join the No Pride in Invasion group? Um, so, like I said, very early days, uh, we have a Facebook event where we will just be marching as a group. Um, hopefully in the future we will be able to set up a little bit of a more permanent home where people can um, engage uh, on social media. Um, but at the moment it's just kind of first things first. Let's get as many people out there and in the street uh, on January 26th. Beautiful. Uh, so the Facebook page we'll put links to our in our show notes, but it might be worth reminding people that the, the organisation is called No Pride in Invasion. Uh, do, do you have any sort of, well, I, I suppose um, No Pride in Detention is quite a sort of a, a horizontal organisation, but do you have any support from No Pride in Detention? Um, I mean, we have their uh, explicit blessings and support insofar as um, we're, uh, you know, kind of branded under um, their organisation and uh, many, there's overlap, um, of course, so many people who are, um, you know, activists or uh, participants with No Pride in Detention will, uh, you know, support No Pride in Invasion as well. Um, but 
uh, you know, it's a grassroots organization, so there's uh, not a lot in the way of money, but that's uh, certainly not going to stop us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I do have another question about um, the future of No Pride and Invasion. I acknowledge that mm-hmm. it is early days, but what plans, if any, um, does No Pride and Invasion have to continue the work of um, fighting against invasion and fighting against um, colonization in the future beyond the 26th? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so, you know, as you say, it's very early days, but there is, uh, you know, some interest in making it something a little bit larger than that. Um, you know, so decolonization doesn't just happen on that one day of the year. And um, I know that Geraldine and myself would be particularly interested in seeing whether or not this could be used as some kind of um, uh, site or locus to connect communities which sometimes don't get to meet. Um, so... We're just going to see how things go and see uh, what happens. Wonderful. Um, so where where will people find you on the 26th? Is, is there going to be a very clearly marked sort of place where people can find no pride and in invasion? Yeah, I mean, uh, we'll have a whole bunch of flags and we'll have a whole bunch of very, uh, very large and loud signs. Um, we'll be uh, just to the side of the steps of Parliament um, from uh, 10, uh, 10 a.m., um, 10.30 a.m. Um, so just approach myself or Geraldine or really anyone uh, who is uh, holding the sign or holding the flag and say hello. Look for the rainbow flags. Yeah, too easy. Wonderful. Uh, thank you. I've been speaking to Joshua Badge, who's an organiser with No Pride and Invasion, LGBT activist, um, lecturer in philosophy at Deakin. Uh, Joshua, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Community Radio. And thank you so much for having me today. City, City Limits. limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Limits. You listen to 3CR. This is Billy X. Jennings of the Black Panther Party. Power to the people. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio. Next up, Indigenous Rights Radio by Cultural Survival interviews HIV advocate Marama Mullen, Ngatiawa Māori, ex- Executive Director of INA, the Māori Indigenous and South Pacific HIV AIDS Foundation. In this interview, uh, Marama discusses the HIV-AIDS Prevention and Awareness Network that her organisation has fostered among Indigenous communities in the South Pacific. Let's listen in. Indigenous Rights Radio, because knowledge is power. How does HIV-AIDS impact Indigenous communities? Cultural Survival spoke to Marma Malan from New Zealand to inform us on the subject. Hello, my name is Marama Malan and I am from um, New Zealand Aotearoa and I'm the Executive Director of INA, the Māori Indigenous and South Pacific HIV and AIDS Foundation. Thank you for joining us. What is the impact of HIV AIDS amongst Indigenous peoples in New Zealand and other Indigenous peoples of the world? 
So we have um, an international organisation called the International Indigenous HIV and AIDS Community. Um, currently we have 11 countries that are um, involved and within those countries each runs an Indigenous uh, focused HIV and AIDS prevention and care and support organisation. So we, we've got quite a large reach. Um, but in my country, um, HIV is very low prevalence compared to, say, South Africa or other parts of sub-Saharan Africa. And, but yet, um, we're still disproportionate. So Indigenous people um, are being impacted disproportionately compared to our non-Indigenous um, people. And we also find that um, in different countries such as Canada and Australia, the same thing is happening. And particularly in Canada, um, where um, the Indigenous people there, their numbers are highest out of all Indigenous peoples within Western countries. And um, what's interesting in their epidemiology is that the numbers um, of women is very similar to that of Africa where they're around 50% of the numbers is, are indigenous women. So that we can see comparisons that we can draw from um, Africa, we can draw from Western countries and developing countries. Would you say that the social status of indigenous peoples is a factor that contributes to this disproportionate infection rate? We determined through a study that we did quite a few years ago the social health determinants between the different indigenous communities and, and countries were similar and those were all directly um, related to colonisation, poverty, incarceration, um, high levels of alcohol and drug use. Um, we also saw that um, the the impact of colonisation for generations was making people vulnerable to HIV as well. Are Indigenous communities receiving any specific assistance in HIV prevention from their respective states? Well, what's happened in, in the last six years or so, um, our organisation has really advocated strongly and how we've been able to get, um, sort of infiltrate the, the services to get the states to, the member states to, to take notice is by coming to meetings such as this, um, so the permanent forum on Indigenous issues. Last year we were heavily involved with the um, General Assembly on HIV, so I was part of the um, organising committee, the, the co-chair of that organising committee to make sure Indigenous issues were heard and we, the first time ever, had Indigenous people mentioned in the Declaration on HIV, which has never happened in the past and we were mentioned twice from through our advocacy and pushing that Indigenous people were a key population and we see ourselves as a key population. Are Indigenous peoples doing something for themselves in order to combat the spread of HIV? Well, I think there needs to be an emergency um, group meeting, and so that these forums create that. Um, we need to have more meetings around HIV with Indigenous people, so that's a goal. We want people to have it um, more in their focus, and we want to raise the voice of, of people living with HIV because there's so much stigma and discrimination that happens in Indigenous communities and our non-Indigenous communities towards people living with HIV. So we want to show the science that shows that um, if we are taking medication and we receive treatment, we're un untransmittable. It means that if our viral load is undetected, we don't transmit the virus to anybody. A lot of people do not know that information because they just hear about HIV and think that's, that's all that there is. We have actually a 10-point statement that I can give you um, that describes the sort of demands that we're making um, globally 
to have our things, uh, our concerns heard and what needs to happen. Uh, otherwise, we will end up being um, left behind. Thank you very much, Marama. Here's a summary of the 10-point statement. 1. HIV and AIDS affects everyone. 2. Indigenous populations matter. 3. Accurate data and indigenous-driven research are essential. 4. Getting to zero means addressing equity. 5. Indigenous health and rights should be included in all policy. 6. Guarantee access to treatment for all. 7. Indigenize the prevention movement. 8. Finance a comprehensive indigenous HIV and AIDS response. 9. Support indigenous community-based responses and leadership. And 10. Ensure collective leadership and accountability. For more from Indigenous leaders on Indigenous people's rights, visit cs.org slash rights. For more info about the INA Foundation, visit ina.maori.nz. And for more information about HIV AIDS, visit who.int slash HIV. And that was Indigenous Rights Radio by Cultural Survival. You can follow Cultural Survival on Twitter at CSORG. That's CSORG. We'll be right back. Have you ever wondered about the meaning of the terms identity politics, intersectionality, turf, or institutional racism? Same here. This summer, Tuesday Breakfast is going back to school to answer these questions and more. Join us as we learn from experts, academics, writers, activists, and people with lived experiences to share their knowledge on decolonization, sovereignty and self-determination, race and identity, sexuality and gender, and disability and accessibility. Knowledge shouldn't be locked away at a university, so let us bring it to you. Tune into Summer School, Tuesday mornings from 7am, starting the 8th of January, 855am or via 3cr.org.au. And check out our Instagram, 3CR Tuesday Breakfast, for more details. All right. In December last year, the ACTU, uh, long version, Australian Council of Trade Unions, released results from a survey surrounding sexual harassment in the workplace. They found two out of three responses from women and one out of three um, responses from men being subjected to uh, one or more forms of sexual harassment in the workplace. Now, we have Michelle O'Neill on the line today, uh, the president of the ACTU, um, to tell us how this report came about and what its findings were. Good morning. Yeah, good morning, Adwin and Will. Um, so this report came about, uh, really it's part of a long history of unions in Australia mm-hmm. fighting against sexual harassment, something that we've been active in for decades. And uh, we were concerned that there was um, really not enough being done to try and make sure that we stamped out sexual harassment, but also that anyone who was experiencing it could really um, get the support and get it stopped. So uh, there was an announcement that the uh, Sex Discrimination Commission was going to do an inquiry into sexual harassment, and we wanted to make sure that the voices of ordinary workers were heard. So we decided that we'd set up a way of reaching out to ordinary union members and workers and give them a chance to tell their story. And we've been overwhelmed by the response. We set the survey up um, online in September, and uh, just really over a period of two months, we nearly got 10,000 um, responses. 
Yeah, and I, I suppose, as you said, you did get such so many responses from across the fields in economy, education, mining, finance. Um, just with the quick logistics of this report, how is it um, made accessible to workers and how is it... Uh, how was the sur- what did the survey look like? Was it um, anecdotal evidence or more of a kind yeah, of range? Yeah, it was uh, available online, so it was limited. And it's not, um, mm. we don't suggest that that's the, um, you know, an effective way of reaching everyone. It was sort of one step towards trying to make sure that um, workers' voices are heard. So mm-hmm. it was available online and it had a combination of questions as well as, as um, ways that you could just tell your own story as well. And it either, of course, you could do it confidentially, but you could also indicate if you were happy for us to contact you and um, follow up more detail or um, be able to pass on those details as part of the inquiry. So it gave some options, mm-hmm. uh, but at its most basic level, it let people just confidentially tell us what had happened. And I suppose working with the definition of sexual harassment, uh, what exactly, like, what forms of sexual harassment in the workplace were you, was, was the survey specifically looking at? Well, we were looking at all forms of harassment, mm-hmm. sexual harassment, and we weren't limiting it to, um, at all. And what we found, of course, is that you've got this whole wide gamut of harassment that um, it includes, you know, offensive remarks and comments and basically goes right through to sexual assault. Yeah, well, mentioning some of the figures that come out of it, um, obviously uh, 48% people of respondents said that they uh, received unwanted sexual attraction, uh, 35% said inappropriate tu- touching, and almost 10% of the people surveyed suggested that they had uh, been subjected to some level of sexual coercion. So I suppose those are uh, crazy statistics to come out of this survey. Uh, what, were the, what were the kind of the highlighting trends for you that, you, that, that really hit you? Well... They're shocking, you know. Mm. To think that in uh, that in that we're in 2019 and we still see these extreme levels of harassment in the workplace yeah. um, is completely unacceptable. And uh, it is. Uh, I mean, we knew the problem was bad, but I, I suppose that um, it's really confronting to see the extent of this, and also to uh, realise that you know you get those figures about how many people have experienced. Uh, harassment, but less than half of the people that filled yeah. in the survey had actually reported it. So you've got these really high levels of harassment, um, but less than half of the people are actually reporting it. And then um, of people that make a formal complaint, um, there's only um, 27% that actually make any sort of formal complaint, mm. and nearly 40% of people told nobody. Like told no one at all. Yeah, yeah. So they're isolated and alone. And uh, you know, sexual harassment can have devastating consequences um, across, you know, for the individual. Um, but of course, it's also a really bad workplace culture. Like it's something yeah. that you know, this people should be able to have safe workplaces. You should have a right to be able to go to work um, and be treated with respect and dignity. Get the job done. Go home and you know, not be um, have your life affected by it in any sort of negative way. And so, it, this is a, a fundamental issue about rights, it's about power, and it's about health and safety. Definitely, and. Uh 
Um, just talking about the fact that there was 58% who had experienced harassment, but only you know 27% who had actually followed up with a formal complaint. Uh, the main reason being listed as fearing a negative reaction. It puts me in mind of um, almost that schoolyard snitches get stitches sort of culture that we've somehow got really heavily manifested in Australia. Um, I was wondering, how do you think we culturally kind of retrain ourselves to see speaking up uh, as empowerment or assertiveness rather than a betrayal of something or unreasonable complaints or you know kind of just hysteria? Well, I think the key to this is that workers need to know they can make a complaint, it's going to be taken seriously, and mm. that the behaviour is going to stop. So yeah. I mean, people don't make a complaint because they don't have confidence that they're going to be believed and that there's going to be a result, or they think there's going to be negative consequences for them. So one of the huge issues we've got in Australia at the moment is this rise of insecure work. So with the rise of casual contract labour hire um, work, workers are fearful about their job security mm. and that means that on all sorts of issues and we're clearly seeing this in relation to sexual harassment, um, workers are unsure about what the impact of speaking up is going to be. They uh, are worried that that's going to lead to them losing their job. They're worried that it's going to lead to them not getting shifts, not getting hours, not getting the opportunities that they need or not, not getting what they need to even just be able to meet the cost of living and get mm. by. So you can't look at it in isolation. It's not just about you know training people. It's about changing workers' rights. So we need to make sure that um, we change this system where we do create secure jobs, where workers aren't forced into casual and insecure work, where they've got the right to permanency if they want that, to be able to make sure that we do have better systems of complaint and, and we want to see a way of complaints being dealt with as a workplace issue, so using the Fair Work Commission, not just that what is proven to be a long and very um, difficult and complicated um, process under things like the Human Rights Commission. We think the Human Rights Commission continues to have an important role here, but Mm -hmm. we want to see the capacity for workers to take complaints of harassment um, through the fair work system and be able to um, deal with it. The other key thing, of course, with this is about the role of unions. So um, workers need to have the confidence that um, they can be part of collective responses to this, that they've got access to a union in their workplace. I mean, I've got mm. a personal experience as a, as a young girl mm. of um, being harassed and being able to speak to a union shop steward and get the matter resolved, and that was many years ago. Um, but I remember it really clearly and what a difference that made, yeah, of yeah. being able to you know, know that there was... Um, women in the workplace and then a delegate in the workplace who stood with me and stood beside me. Uh, so, of course, it's also about um, workers having a right to be able to unionise, having better laws that give union access to workplaces. These are key to it as well. Well, I suppose that, yeah, it, it's scary just how many people feel disempowered from speaking up. But also another aspect I wanted to pull out was the fact that uh, so many people have witnessed sexual harassment in the workplace but felt they're unable to do anything. Um and that, that, that really confronts me because it, it's obviously people who are not going through the sexual, not being subjected to the sexual harassment themselves, but having to watch uh, either occasional or frequent sexual harassment being subjected to someone else and feeling completely and utterly powerless. I was wondering if you had any advice of what they can do kind of about that. Well, look, I think the very best advice 
any worker can have is to join a union so that they're not alone. So whether they're experiencing harassment themselves or whether they're witnessing harassment in a workplace and feel powerless about it, the key to power is not being alone. Mm. Um, and so being part of a collective, being able to join a union and have others that, that you can talk to about it. In the first instance, it's often really important that people can talk confidentially and just say, did you see that? Or this has happened to me and what are we going to do about it? Yeah. So, you know, that ability to have other people that you can work with on resolving an issue and the strength of being able to say we won't stand for this in a workplace and we're going to stand together to make it stop is really the key. We know across the world that unionised workers' workplaces are safer workplaces. I suppose, yeah, yeah, definitely got a point. And I think the, the last thing to bring out with this is the fact that obviously new technologies are bringing uh, kind of new techniques of sexual harassment and uh, that sort of thing. I was wondering if you had any idea, because the report suggested that 18% of respondents had received explicit texts, emails or messages. I'm wondering what do we need to do in the face of this kind of new form of sexual harassment in the workplace? Well, again, I think it's about people understanding that harassment has a whole lot of forms um, and it is um, increasingly done online. It's increasingly done in all sorts of different ways um, mm-hmm. using technology and nothing is makes it okay. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it is because it's in um, a, an email or a text, it's no less offensive, it's no less harassment than if it's said in person or done in person. So mm-hmm. people uh, need to understand that. That needs to be clearly outlined in workplaces. People need to know that the policy is un- uh, what it is. They need to know it's unacceptable. They need to know it's con- got consequences. Um, but importantly, employers and managers need to make that really clear. Um, and workers need to know that they're going to get swift access to justice, that it's going to be dealt with, it's going to be taken seriously and that they're not going to be targeted. So it is, I think, um, about both information and systems, mm-hmm. but also, as I said, of course, it's about um, the the role of unions in workplaces and that capacity to have um, separate and confidential support that's not tied to your employment status. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for coming on today. Um, where would the just for readers who would like to read this report themselves, would that be accessible on your website? Uh, look, we've got the, at the moment on the website, we've got the report summary, the mm-hmm. main out. So yeah, that is available, um, on the website and you'll be able to have a look at the main findings of the report. And of course, we're also feeding in, um, this information and a lot of other, um, views that we're getting from the unions across Australia into this human rights. Commission inquiry that's still going on and the Human Rights Commission inquiry also extended the time that you can make submissions to that and individuals can do really simple submissions to that as well. So as well as having a look at what the ACTU's done, there's also a way that people can feed into that um, Human Rights Commission inquiry that's going on at the moment. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Michelle, for joining us and we'll obviously uh, keep in touch with this issue. No worries. Thanks very much for the call. You're listening to 3CR. We'll be back. You're listening to 3CR Radio. (laughs) Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think... Wayward Girl, the intersectional feminist music show. Tune in Fridays 9 to 10 through summer 
on 3CR. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, streaming at 3cr.org.au, 3CR Digital, Podcasting or Audio On Demand. Interested in mental health issues? Then tune into Brainwaves every Wednesday at 5pm. Brainwaves is a peer-produced and presented program addressing issues that may affect you. 3CR, inclusive radio, making your voice heard. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6 p.m. Tuesdays. Hi, you're listening to 3CR. So, last year we interviewed Claire from Project Futures about modern slavery in Australia, a small organisation up in Sydney which deals with um, survivors of modern slavery. With an estimated 4,300 people enslaved in Australia today, a bill last year was created and passed to address workplace modern, uh, sorry, modern slavery. Uh, today we have the Human Rights Law Centre, uh, Karen, on the phone, following up on one of the stories we covered last year to kind of look at this new bill and how it kind of works. So good morning, Karen. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. Um, now this work, uh, please do correct me if I'm wrong, but this bill works by targeting chains with a consolidated revenue of at least $100 million um, and requiring them to provide an annual report on the modern slavery risks within their operation and supply chains and then the action that they will take to kind of tackle these, the, the, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So this will affect approximately 3,000 of Australia's largest organisations and businesses and the first statements will need to be um, provided in 2020. So it's a little ways off, yes. Uh-huh. And some of, some of these companies are, are already providing um, in this kind of information, but this is an attempt to systematise it and make sure that all companies, all large Australian companies, um, whether they're sourcing from here in Australia or overseas, are being transparent about their supply chains and the risks of modern slavery in their supply chains. I suppose it does operate on this level of transparency. What's so powerful behind making these companies kind of uh, strip back their operations and look at what they're doing wrong? Well, um, the, the, the issue of forced labour and trafficking um, is mm-hmm. one that's been outlawed in Australia for a long time, but we know it's still occurring. We know that there's an estimated... 4,000 people um, still working here, even here in Australia, in conditions that amount to forced labour or slavery. Um, and internationally, that's a much bigger problem. There's around 21 million people um, internationally who are estimated to be working in these types of conditions. And the problem is that it's it's a very hidden problem. And the reason for that is that um, there's no requirement at the moment for companies to say where they're sourcing their goods from. So a company, for example, that's um, that's relying on workers making their clothing in factories in Bangladesh is mm-hmm. not at the moment required to say um, that they are doing so or where their factories are or who their suppliers are. So it's very difficult for anyone else, whether that be 
government, consumers, investors to actually know which companies are at greatest risk of um, of relying on forced labour and which um, are doing the right thing. And that, in turn, doesn't means that companies that are trying to do the right thing get undercut by by those that um, are turning a blind eye to abusive practices. And I guess uh, my question to come out of this, Bill, is how is this going to target um, low-level businesses kind of underneath that $100 million bracket of consolidated revenue? Um, f- for example, you know, smaller businesses which are still kind of working on modern slavery, do those need to be targeted? Is that possibly missing from the bill? Well, I mean, we, we argued that smaller businesses where they are operating in kind of high-risk sectors mm-hmm. um, or industries should be targeted. And I think yeah. <laughs> this bill is a, is a first step. Um, there's, an, there's a process whereby it's going to be reviewed in three years' time. So I think that the government sees this as a, a first step to see how this works and to target mm-hmm. the, the biggest businesses first. Um, and then um, hopefully there will be scope for expanding that down the down the track to also include businesses that are um, in those high-risk areas. And one of the things that was recommended by um, last year's Modern Slavery Inquiry was mm-hmm. um, was for government to actually draw up a list of what you know what are the kind of the really high-risk sectors and in industries, so that we're we're all clear um, which are the kind of um, that the areas that need to be looked at. Yeah, and I suppose uh, within modern slavery as an issue has such a wide range of facets. I mean, we've got living below, uh, living on kind of uh, low wages, imported labour, debt bondage, insidious coercion. Like some of these things, as the report said, are hidden in plain sight. How do we address those in this bill? Well, I think that this bill is only one part of a raft of measures that need to happen to address mm-hmm. these kind of practices. And obviously, forced labour doesn't occur in a vacuum. It occurs in the context of um, general um, problem with kind of low wages in certain countries, with lack of regulation of, um, of particular factories, a kind of lack of enforcement of existing labour laws. Um, and, you know, and, and, and these things... Um, and, and there's also a big problem with... Um, the fact that big, some of the big brands often impose very um, uh, unreasonable um, production targets and put a lot of pressure back down through their supply chains, which inevitably leads to these types of practices occurring. So, um, this, this, you know, this measure, um, while it's an important first step, is really only one small piece of what's needed to to address this. And I mean, we we think that this um, even this particular bill should be should be further strengthened because at mm. the moment there's no um, it doesn't um, impose any penalties, for example, on companies yeah. that, that don't submit um, a statement of this kind, and, and, we, and we think that's a big weakness. Yeah, no, I, I, I do understand that one of the uh, critiques coming out of it was the, the lack of teeth for kind of penalties and uh, any like financial punishment almost for not applying to the rules. Um, another critique that come out of it is the fact that the bill lacks an independent body to kind of recognize, regulate company compliance. Do you think this might be something that comes around or is discussed in the three-year mark review? Well, we hope it does because it was something that was, again, a key recommendation of the Modern Slavery Inquiry and it's something that government had chose not to pick up on in this stage. They've instead um, created um, just a small body within um, the Home Affairs um, Department, a small team of people that are supposed to assist businesses to kind of to comply with the bill. But there's no real enforcement mechanism um, for this bill and, uh, you know, for it to be called a kind of a mandatory disclosure regime when um, actually there's no penalties or consequences for companies that, that, that don't comply with it is, in our view, um, wrong. You know, it, it, mm. if, something's, you know, if something's mandatory, it needs to be mandatory. There needs to be a way of enforcing it. And it's precisely the worst 
um, the worst players in the game that are the ones that are least likely to comply. So mm. um, we think that there needs to be, while there does need to be incentives for companies who are trying to do the right thing, there also needs to be um, a way of ensuring that those who don't um, are brought up to scratch. Yeah, no, so we're not just aware of them, their bad practices and then no actions taken, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I mean, that's the, the other problem, I think, with the, the bill in terms of it not going far enough is that it doesn't actually require companies to do anything new beyond mm. what they're currently doing. It simply requires them to describe their existing practices and the, the, the intention is that, that that in and of itself will lead companies to, to lift their game and improve their behaviour. But I think, mm. you know, when we're talking about something as serious as forced labour, yeah. um, uh, um, you know, there's a criminal actions. Um, it, it really is, is not good enough for companies to simply be able to continue on business as usual. There needs to be a real impetus to change practice. Mm, definitely, definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Um, I suppose with this first step, um, where do you think Australia, you have summarised it quite well throughout the interview, but I, think, I suppose what do you think our next step is within um, a cultural change around modern slavery? Because I know it's not something we often talk about, it's not a widely spread issue that's really always in the news. Um, how do you think we gain more awareness and traction for this? Well, I think that that is one of the benefits of, of this new bill mm. is that it will help to kind of elevate the conversation around this issue in Australia mm. more generally and particularly in boardrooms because um, directors and boards are required to actually sign off on these statements. And in the UK where similar legislation has been in place for mm. some time, um, that has apparently led to um, a real kind of awareness raising around this issue. Um, but that, you know, in the UK, unlike here, they do have an independent um, slavery commissioner, yeah. which which has also assisted, I think, in in raising um, uh, raising the debate and um, public awareness of the, de- the debate around this. And I think that, um, you know, so I think. That will obviously be an important next step to look at is whether there should be some kind of independent um, body or commissioner charged with um, ensuring that this um, uh, that this bill doesn't become a tick box exercise and yeah. it's actually a real um, a real kind of impetus for changing company behaviour. Um, and then it's I think it's up to all of us as well to to use the opportunity that's provided by this bill. Um, to actually put pressure on companies that aren't complying and aren't doing the right thing and to shine a spotlight, as it were, on, on, um, on the kind of more the worst areas of, of, of abuses in Australia and overseas. I suppose that's, uh, my last question is, uh, will these reports be made accessible to public? Will consumers be able to look at certain companies and kind of choose which companies they want to support? Yeah, they will. There will be a central um, publicly accessible registry where companies are supposed to put um, their statements, and I think that and that's been an improvement in the Australian mm. legislation compared to what what is the case in the UK, where comp- where people have had to go onto individual companies' websites to try and work out, you know, what what they're doing and compare them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's obviously important. But, you know, when, when you're talking about 3,000 companies, it's still quite difficult for people to, <laughs> sort, through um, all of them. <laughs> to sort through all of that information. So one Definitely. thing that we've, we've pushed for and which I'm happy to see that the government did adopt as a final change in, in this legislation is that um, the government will itself publish a, a list um, annually in relation to which companies are expected to comply and which aren't complying. 
Um, so I think that that's, that's going to be a really important um, measure for people to be able to have some quick way of actually comparing which companies are doing the right thing. That sounds absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for being on our show today. Um, and we'll have to watch how this kind of <laughs> grows as an issue. Um, but, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You are listening to 3CR Community Radio Wednesday Breakfast. Next up, we're going to listen to a song. This is White Rose by the fabulous TK Meitzer.
listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Hi, I'm Jeff Tobin from Jazz on a Saturday, which is presented by the Victorian Jazz Club every week here on Community Radio 3CR. During the month of January, on Wednesdays between 2 and 4, I'll be sitting in for Kate and Susie, who are having a well-earned break, and uh, I'll be presenting Jazz, Blues, Western Swing and a couple of specials on women who have made a great contribution to Jazz and Blues over the last century. And Kate and Susie will be back with you on Wednesday the 13th February. Until then, enjoy the jazz, blues and western swing. You're listening to 3CR. It's currently 8 o'clock and we're going to do the weather. So, today we have a max of 26 degrees and it's going to be humid, part cloudy, zero chance of rain. And for those in areas with um, fire dangers, the fire danger rating is high today. So, do keep an eye on that. However, it will be cooling kind of for the rest of the week. Uh, Tomorrow is going to be a max of 33, but... 40% 40% chance of rain, and that will be throughout the rest of the week. So we're looking at high uh, 20s, we're looking at 33 for tomorrow, 28 for Friday, and a cooler change with a 22 on Saturday, which will be nice, mm. and kind of cloudy uh, with a chance of rain for that the rest of the week. Really good. What also sounds really good is this next mm-hmm. interview that we're going to be playing. PUSH is a new grassroots organisation and an anti-fascist collective. Member Debbie Brennan comes on Tuesday home time with Jan Bartlett to give us an overview of two weekends of anti-fascism. Let's listen in. For the past two Saturdays, what the corporate media likes to label left-wing radicals have been on the streets of Melbourne to oppose the racist views of the far-right element in our society. But the two events were strikingly different, as Debbie Brand from PUSH will explain. Debbie, take us back to the 5th of January at the St Kilda Beach. What many people did not know, I'm sure, at that time was that was the day, was the 100th anniversary of the founding of a political party, which was to have devastating ramifications in coming decades. What do you believe the people who went that day knew about that day? I think that... One thing that we're dealing with generally is that the understanding of the Nazi threat, there needs to be education about this, that the Nazis are not just a bunch of buffoons and clowns. They're not a game. They're they're serious. And that the 5th of January at St. Kilda just demonstrated that we do have to take the Nazi threat seriously, know what that threat is, know how dangerous they are, and cohere an anti-fascist movement. But did people actually know that it was the anniversary of the founding of the party? I believe that those of us who kind of 
know that history, yeah, we understood the the meaning of that. I don't know if that was generally known. Were you surprised at the antics of the far right on that day? No, no, not at all. Again, when you know when you know how violent they are, the fact that they declared that they were going to basically have a Cronulla number two, you know, on St. Kilda Beach, that's a very, very serious threat. And we also knew that we, the, the police would be there in force, which they were, and the police are not there to protect us. How did it go on that day? I wasn't in Melbourne on that day. Well, the police were there in force. They were there with everything that we're used to, like the riot squads and the mounted police and so on, but they also had the attack dogs. They had their new weaponry. They had their helicopter up above. They had their um, patrol boat on the foreshore. They were there in total, total force. So what happened was that we had a... Apparently, we did outnumber them about two to one at the beginning or, or thereabouts. We had a good disciplined, you know, march toward where the fascists were hanging out. Um, of course, that meant that we had this huge police line. Um, we walked up to the police line. and But what happened afterwards is that... It got quite confusing. We ended up being kettled. Our side was kettled by the police. And the police allowed the fascists to just roam around at will. So that, it was, it was highly dangerous. Just explain to people who don't know what the word kettle means. Yes. Um, to kettle means that what the police do is that they surround you. So you are totally surrounded by police and you cannot get through. When you made the reference to Cronulla, a repeat of Cronulla, Mm. are you talking about the fact that it was on the beach or are you talking about the fact that that beach is used by African youth to play soccer? Is that what happens? It would have been. Well, what, what the fascists would have had in mind is that, yeah, reference to Cronulla um, is... The, the so-called Cronulla riots that happened um, quite some time ago when um, white far-right, including Nazis, claimed the beach, um, saying it was a beach for whites, that people of color, and up there in Cronulla in Sydney, there um, is a large Lebanese community and a general, you know, people of color community enjoying the beach like everybody else. So when the fascists here referred to a Cronulla too, they were making that clear reference that they were going to take the beach and remove Sudanese and basically any other people of color. But of course, they were zeroing in on the Sudanese mainly because of the demonizing of the Sudanese community by our state government as much as anything else. And also the media. Absolutely. Well, one week on, there's a rally outside the State Library by groups opposing racism. A different day. 
Yes, it was a very different day. That day was, um, this is just this past Saturday, it was organized by Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. It was important, actually, to have that action because the Saturday prior was not a good day. As you know, a clear defeat of Nazis. We had to be out again mobilizing, so it was... Um, uh, uh, you know, pretty good turnout. What was good about sat this past Saturday, the 12th of January, is that in this response to the Nazis, and by the way, I should mention that at St. Kilda, they were outwardly Nazi. They were doing the Sig Heils and so on. Nobody can make the mistake that they're anything but Nazis. So this past Saturday, there was a diverse crowd that came out to take a stand and say that Melbourne does not tolerate the presence of Nazis. What was particularly groundbreaking about this past Saturday is that the union movement mobilized. What happened was after St. Kilda, the ACTU put out a strong statement about the union movement and why the union movement stands up against Nazis. And what came out of that was that Trades Hall Council actually, uh, promoted this past Saturday. Particular unions were promoting it very heavily. And so we had specific unions there with their flags, like the National Union of Workers, the Independent Education Union, the Tertiary um, Education Union, the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance, the Rail, Tram and Bus Union, which were just some of them. And that was absolutely important for the unions to be coming out. So this is a turning point. I think it is a turning point. I think it's a very positive one that many of us in the anti-fascist movement over these years have been working very, very hard and consistently to bring the union movement in because they're vital to cohering an anti-fascist movement in cohering a united front of organizations to work together against the fascists because Number one, unionists are made up of the very diverse targets of fascists, but secondly, the union movement itself is a prime target of fascism, as we know from history, because of its capacity to organize workers. And it has to be consistent that you have these rallies. Yes, it does have to be consistent. You're absolutely right, because... It's, it's not only important to be there consistently to counter and, you know, confront the fascist threat, but it's a build-up. We have to keep building up and bringing, you know, people need to have that ability to come in on that movement. By the way, the other good thing about that, the rally, Melbourne says no to Nazis this past Saturday, is the diversity of speakers. And I'll just mention a couple of speakers who struck me. One was Titan, who 
is a uh, South Sudanese community activist and a musician. He was making a point that the Sudanese people, of course, they know they face a threat by being part of mobilizations against fascists um, because the fascists, of course, are gunning for them. He made the point that those of us who are not black, there is a privilege there that we, and he used that word, to use, that we must use that. We, mu we have a responsibility to do exactly what those of us who are out there every time are doing because it, that important solidarity to be building that movement in solidarity with the Sudanese and all immigrants of color. I would add to that, by the way, though, that those of us who aren't black are also, however, targets of fascists. Um, because fascists, of course, have a very broad agenda. There is another speaker, Sylvie Lieber, from Jews for uh, Refugees. She did an important thing in her speech of bringing back that history, and she referred back to her grandparents in Germany, the, the history of what happened in Germany. And it's so important for us to be very clear on what happened 70 years ago and to hear it from the mouths of descendants because that tells us so graphically what fascism actually is and it isn't something to take lightly it's something to take and mobilize to stop very very seriously and that was debbie brennan from push speaking to jan bartlett yesterday afternoon you can listen to tuesday home time with jan bartlett every tuesday afternoon from 4 p.m only on 3cr Stay tuned for another interview. We appreciate, like, you mob and all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this, you know. It's very good. It keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it. Because of her we can, yeah. I want to be a better, better man, yeah. Because of her we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know. Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. When I first come to this jail, it was about 10 years ago and I was a young one. A whole heap of young ones come off the truck the other day and they call me Auntie Marlene. So it helped me recognise and realise that like, I pulled myself up like, yeah. They're starting to look up to me, so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Rumination. RCR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program, featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday, 
on 3CR 855 AM. The time is 8.15 and you are listening to 3CR Community Radio. On Monday, the Federal Immigration Minister and the Government announced that it will be changing the Australian Citizenship Ceremonies Code to force local councils to hold citizenship ceremonies on January 26, so-called Australia Day. This was done without consultation with local governments, according to the Australian Local Government Association, and ignores a number of councils' both ethical and practical concerns. Moreland Socialist Alliance councillor Sue Bolton is on the line to give us an understanding of the implications of this and to share her views. Good morning, Sue. Hi, how's it going? Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR. Um, let's get straight into it. Um, first of all, what do you make of this announcement by the federal government? PM Scott Morrison says that his government isn't politicising Australia Day. What do you think? I think it's pretty obvious that it's a desperate government that des- is desperate to get re-elected and it's on the nose quite massively. So they're using their tried-and-true method of trying to whip up racism and division in the hope that uh, people will be scared into voting for them again uh, and taking advantage of the fact that some people um, are sort of pretty ignorant of the facts of what Australia Day, or what I prefer to call Invasion Day, what it actually represents. Yeah, and um, it seems to be part of a pattern of behaviour that um, the the government will bring up certain um, sort of standbys for um, for this sort of imagery just to, to, to push people into their corner for voting reasons. Um, what is Moreland Council's position on commemorating Australia Day in the first place? Well, Moreland Council's position isn't quite as strong as a couple of the other councils, Yarra and Darabin councils. Um, so Yarra and Darabin councils voted not only to not recognise or commemorate um, 26th of January as Australia Day, but they also decided not to hold their citizenship ceremonies on that day. Um, now, when the vote came to Moreland Council, it was um, a more, more contested than it was in Yarra Council and uh, Darabin Council. Uh, it was much more contested. And so Moreland ended up voting not to recognise the 26th of January, um, not to commemorate it and, or, and not to refer to it as Australia Day. But uh, we lost the vote about not holding citizenship ceremonies on that day. Um, and uh, then the overall vote to not recognise uh, Australia Day on the, as being 26th of January um, only got up by a slim majority. And I think that's why the far right sort of targeted Moreland Council. I think they were hoping to try and uh, slip the vote, <laughs> try and uh, get that vote revisited and, it, um, and get a different result. Um, but that hasn't, hasn't succeeded at all. Um, and I'd say there's probably stronger feeling on Moreland Council now than there was at the time. But I definitely don't accept the argument that um, citizenship ceremonies should be on uh, the 26th of January. I mean, it's worth pointing out that um, Yarra councils and um, uh, Darabin council actually had their ability to hold citizenship ceremonies taken off them by the coalition go- government 
as a result of that vote. Um, is that is that a troubling um, is that troubling to you that the federal government has this kind of relationship with local um, councils that they will just take um, privileges away if you don't stick to the line? I think that is the problem with federal and state government both because both of them have the ability to override local councils when they don't agree with what local councils do. And one of the reasons they um, exercise that authority so much with local councils or try to is because local councils are able to be influenced more by the community. Like, the local councils are much closer to the community. It's much easier for community campaigns to have an impact on local council whereas state and federal government are so far removed, it's um, really it's much harder to have an influence over what state and federal governments do. So that means um, state and federal governments worry that local communities will cave into community pressure, um, especially on I- issues around neoliberalism. And so they're constantly trying to stop local councils making anything but the... Um, any decisions other than just implementing federal and state uh, government policies. So, yeah, that's so. Yeah, it, does, it is a worry, but it's something which state local councils have to deal with all the time. And you know, there's a you know there are a number of local councillors who uh, you know argue against councils adopting any progressive motions and say that, you know, local councils should just stick to roads, rates and rubbish. Um, so that's sort of the line that's put um, to try and challenge local councils from being involved in any progressive decision-making. Now, can I ask, Sue, what is the effect of holding citizenship ceremonies on the 26th of January? Well, I think it's really bad. Now, the councils who supported holding citizenship ceremonies on 26th of January argued that this would be a way of, you know, great celebration of multiculturalism, blah, 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 and it is just, you know, I mean, it is <laughs> blah, blah, blah from their point of view. Um, and But then they say, oh, well, it's an opportunity for Aboriginal elders to educate people about what happened on the 26th of January. But I don't agree with that point of view at all. I, there's no necessity to hold uh, citizenship ceremonies on the 26th of January. There's 354 other days of the year. Does that mean people who get their citizenship on other days have less special citizenship than if you get it on the 26th of January? Mm. I mean, it's just totally ridiculous. But also, I think it is a real outrage that they're asking Aboriginal elders to come and do a welcome to country on that day. Um, Yes, it's true. Some Aboriginal elders will maybe put in some educational content about what actually happened on that day other but you know some may feel intimidated because this is an official kind of ceremony and it's you know highly likely that a lot of aboriginal elders may feel that they can't really speak their true mind um you know, on a day, you know, on mm. such an official occasion. And so I think this puts them in a really terrible situation because for Aboriginal people, this is a day of mourning. Mm. Um, and it's not, um, 
it's you know not just um any day it is like a, a and it's not just a mark of the invasion but it's actually a mark of the day of mourning and that is not acknowledged at all in mainstream australia yeah. and that's what really needs to be acknowledged hi Sue. this is just Idwin in the studio um it really sounds to me like nationalism on steroids, and I, I suppose the government has proved itself, our current government has proved itself, to really support this idea of a white Australia at the moment. I mean, we had Fraser Anning the other, the other week doing his crazy stuff and being endorsed by the Prime Minister, and the idea that, you know, your citizenship has to be on Australia Day and it has to be this, this true blue ochre almost ceremony. Do you think we're moving towards an increasingly nationalistic state that we're, we're getting away from kind of multiculturalism and, yeah, subscribing to this, this, this deeply controversial day? I, I, think it, I think they're both... Um, they're trying to, talk, to um, create a lot of nationalism, which in reality under, underneath that is a whole lot of racism mm. um, but also I think what they're trying to do is trying to recruit multicultural communities or migrant communities into that nationalism yeah. um, so they they talk out of, they talk about multiculturalism to so all of these mainstream politicians on some occasions they talk very nationalistic other occasions they talk about multiculturalism, but they never talk about racism. Yeah. Um, and I think what they're, what they're trying to do and what actually the Keating Labor government tried to do when it brought in the whole policy of multiculturalism mm. is trying to integrate migrant communities into nationalism. And so in a sense, um, when they target racist attacks against particular communities, like maybe at the moment Africans and it has been and probably will be again Muslims, mm. in a sense it's sort of like saying to other migrant communities, hint, hint, this isn't targeted at you, you're with us, join us to attack this community mm. um, because these are really bad, you know, because often it's not direct racism in the sense that, they're, you know, they're trying to associate you know, young African people with crime and so they're saying, oh, this is really just about crime and there's particular ethnic uh, crime gangs mm -hmm. so join us in attacking them. But in reality what they're doing is recruiting people into a racist nationalistic racist agenda, agenda which can yeah. then easily be used against other groups in the future and, you know, so I think that's what they're really doing and in some ways the condemnation from some of these right-wing mainstream politicians mm. of Fraser Anning and the Nazis at St Kilda Beach, in some ways I think what they're doing, it's not, a, not necessarily a condemnation of racism. Mm. It's more a condemnation of saying, um, get with the program. This is, isn't how you're going to win modern Australia to racism by using Nazi regalia <laughs> and Nazi symbols. Yeah. Put away the Nazi symbols and do what the National Front's done in France yeah, and modernise itself. Yeah. So, um, you know, so basically in France, how the National Front sort of, you know, made all these I'm so the sorry, Sue. It looks sorry. like we are running, running short oh, on okay. time. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's okay, but I, I'd love to talk to you about the National Front next time. Um, very quickly, where will you be on Invasion Day? 
I'll be absolutely like I have been for many years at the Invasion Day protest. Fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show with us today. Um, We've been speaking to Sue Bolton, um, Moreland Socialist Alliance Councillor. Thank you for joining us, Sue. No worries. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. And just with our last few minutes, I thought we'd wrap up the show. Mm -hmm. So we came on at 7.15 with Joshua Badge from the No Pride in Detention. Uh, We then went on to our 7.22 interview with Indigenous Rights by Cultural Survival Interviews, our Marama Mullen, um, Executive Director of the INA, the Maori Indigenous and South Pacific HIV AIDS Foundation. That's right. And then we spoke to M- Michelle O'Neill, who's the ACTU president, on a recent survey suggesting the wild sp- w- supre- um, describing wild, widespread sexual harassment in yep. the workplace. Mm-hmm. And we also heard from Karen Adams, um, who's from the Human Rights Law Com- um, Center. Center. Thank <laughs> you very much. Um, who talked about the Bill for Modern Slavery that's just passed through the Parliament. Yep, 8 o'clock, we hit with the weather and Debbie Brennan from Push. And we just finished up talking to Sue Bolton about the extraordinarily scary prospect, I think, of citizenship tests on mm. Australia Day. And not citizenship Day. tests, but Sorry. citizenship ceremonies. Ceremonies. Um, so it's, oh. a, it's, not, it's not a proposition, it's actually going to happen. Yeah. And um, it has happened and is continuing to happen in oh. some councils. Um, but can we talk very quickly, because we've only got a minute mm-hmm. left, about what we're thankful for. I'm thankful for books. <laughs> I'm thankful for Rabbi Alamedin, who's mm. the writer of the next book that I'm going to read. I'm going to love it. How about you? I am thankful for, I think this week, plants and bees. I've been enjoying bees, um, including uh, oh, the beautiful plant I'll read in with it next week uh, that smells like honey. And I just planted mm. that in my yard, and that's going to propagate and smell delicious. We're coming up to 8.30, folks. You've been listening to Wednesday Breakfast on mm-hmm. 3CR. Next up, up is Stick, Stick Together. together. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall, and eco-friendly paper and printing outfit, Earth Greetings. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and earthgreetings.com.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.